0: All right, well, good morning and welcome uh, to Redemption Church, everybody. Um, If you do not know me, uh, my name is Reggie, and I'm one of the uh, pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption. And uh, this morning we are continuing on through our series, um, Good News of Great Joy. And so during our Advent uh, time this year, leading up to uh, Christmas and celebrating the Advent, we are moving through the book of Colossians uh, the book of Colossians is a decidedly Christ focused book. Um, it has some of the highest Christology in all of the New Testament within Colossians. And with the Advent being a time to celebrate Christ, uh, to celebrate his coming, to celebrate his um, dwelling with us, uh, we are moving through Colossians. And so, in just a few minutes, um, we're going to look at Colossians 1. Uh, Verses 15 through 20, that's where we'll be this morning, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. But before we get going, um, let me take a moment and pray for us. Holy Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to be present this morning. Thank you for the ways in which we've already been able to uh, hear your word proclaimed, um, to be reminded of what you've done through Christ, uh, to worship through singing, I thank you that we've already had that opportunity, and even now, as we continue through your word, as we examine uh, a little bit of your word, as we find it in Colossians chapter one, Holy Father, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us to you. Holy Father, I pray that Jesus would be lifted high, and because Christ is exalted, we would be drawn to you. And Holy Father, I, I recognize that my words are of little importance this morning, but God, your words are of utmost importance. So. Holy Father, let us hear from you. Use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, that you would be glorified and that we would receive great joy. God, we ask all this in the name of your most precious Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, I had this neighbor, and uh, she was not from Augusta, uh, she was from upstate New York, and every winter her grandfather would come, or her grandparents actually, would come and spend the winter with her in Augusta. I guess it's uh, not quite as cold in Augusta as it is in Buffalo, New York. And so they would come and they would stay next door. And so uh, we would be out, our, our houses were pretty close together, and so I would talk to them pretty often. And one day, as we were leading up to Christmas, her grandfather was outside. And so uh, I just kind of walked up to him and said, hey, are you guys, um, you guys getting ready for Christmas? And he turned, and he looked at me, and he goes, absolutely not. We don't celebrate Christmas. And I, I was taken back. I didn't expect that, right? I didn't expect that answer, so I just probably looked like a deer in headlights. And I went, well, why do you not celebrate Christmas? And he goes, because there's no way that Jesus was born on December 25th and the Catholic Church has been lying to us for hundreds of years, and so we're not going to celebrate Christmas. And right, and at that point, I was even further taken aback, like, what? And uh, he goes, oh, we believe that Jesus is our Savior, but we don't celebrate Christmas. And uh, I don't remember how the conversation ended, but I'm pretty sure I ended it quick because I didn't know what to do with that conversation. And uh, so I walked away, and I just remember thinking uh, after the fact You said you believe that Jesus is the Savior, but you don't celebrate Christmas. And in my mind, I was trying to make this connection, and it occurred to me that simply because you didn't believe Jesus was born on December 25th, and he probably wasn't, that you were missing the opportunity to celebrate and to rejoice in something much bigger than just a date on a calendar, right? And so I just sort of felt sad, Thinking about that encounter, um, not because of anything other than they were missing an opportunity to actually celebrate something incredible that God had done for his people through the incarnation of Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This passage is essentially about a doctrine that we call the doctrine of the incarnation. It's, um, it's the doctrine of Jesus coming to earth to dwell with people, and that's essentially what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? That's what we're celebrating. Christ's arrival to earth, Christ descending to earth to live among people, His people, God becoming a human, God becoming a person, God being born to the Virgin Mary. We just read about a minute ago, Mary. And this idea isn't foreign to us because we've all read, we've all sung Hark the Herald Angels Sing at some point in our life. Even if we don't realize we're celebrating that doctrine, we are. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Right? Christmas, the God who is with us. Jesus, the God who is with us. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And right away in this passage, right at the very beginning of Colossians 1.15, and then in verse 16, Paul makes it very clear to us that we are talking about God, the God who dwelled with us. Colossians 1:15 and 16. Let me read it again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And some people read this passage and they get tripped up, right? Because right away we see it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And so some people will take this passage and they'll say, that means Jesus is the very first created thing. But if you read the passage carefully, that's not what it's saying at all. It's saying that Jesus is the creator of all things. It leads from there that say that Jesus is the God who created all things and all things that exist owe their origin to Jesus. Anything that had a beginning owes its beginning to Jesus. He's the one that created, not the one that was created. And he's called the firstborn of all creation. And I think probably anybody from the first century who read this passage and heard Jesus described as the firstborn would have thought of something else. Their mind would have probably gone to something that we call the concept of primogeniture or the law of primogeniture. And this is sort of what we see in the parable of the prodigal son. You know this story, right? Where the oldest son um, was, uh, it it was the custom for the oldest son in a family to essentially uh, inherit all of the father's estate, the main estate. And essentially the older son would have been seen as equal to the father. So when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, I think what he's probably getting at is he's talking about his standing as being equal with God. So he says Jesus is the firstborn of creation. His standing is that of an equal with the Father. If you look further at verse 19, Paul says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And ultimately, if you go down this road, you end up thinking about the Trinity. The idea that God is three persons, but God is one. And Tim Keller uses this illustration he says when he was growing up, he thought of the Trinity in this way, that God was like a pie. One-third of the pie was God, one-third of the pie was Jesus, one-third of the pie was the Holy Spirit, and that made up one whole thing. But at some point in his life, and he talks about this, he realized that's not exactly what the Trinity is about. Because what Paul says here is that in Christ, all the fullness of God Dwell, Jesus is fully God, and God is fully in Jesus, right? Throughout the Old Testament, when God shows up, how did God show up? He showed up in supernatural ways. In the Exodus, when the children of Israel are leaving Egypt and going to the Promised Land, he's a a, a pillar of fire and a cloud. He showed up to Moses as a burning bush, right? When Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah chapter 6, it's as a king enthroned. When Job encounters God, it's as a whirlwind. But in Jesus, we see God as a baby, as a human. We can relate because Jesus, fully God, all the fullness of God dwelling in him, was born as a baby. God essentially became, not essentially, God became what we are. Even to the point of death. Colossians 1 goes on to say that he's the firstborn of the dead. We can relate because Jesus became so human that he died. God revealed himself to Jesus to make himself known. And that's what the incarnation is about. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God making himself known through Jesus. Now, that's a very brief introduction to the Incarnation, to the doctrine of the Incarnation. What I want to do is move on from there and talk about some of the implications, some of the meanings of the Incarnation. Uh, I would be much more comfortable sitting up here and talking theological points about the Incarnation itself. But I want to push beyond that and let's talk about why the Incarnation matters. Let's talk about the effects and the meaning of the Incarnation. And here's the reason why I think we need to do this. Last weekend, I had some friends of mine that I'd grown pretty close to over the last few years, a, a couple that moved to Augusta because of the Air Force several years ago. And uh, they're getting ready to move to England and uh, for a job in England, and uh, they've gone back home to Texas for a month. And last weekend, as they had packed up their car, packed up a U-Haul trailer, were getting ready to leave town, I texted them and said, Hey, hope you guys have a safe trip. Um we are thinking about you guys, praying for you guys. Uh, by the way, I'm going to come visit you in England because it's a free place to stay. Um, so just prepare yourselves for that. And uh, I got this text back, right? And it kind of caught me off guard because it's not what I would have expected in response. It said, uh, yeah, we'll miss you guys too, but we're not going to miss the weird smells of Augusta. That was literally the text I got back. and I was like, what? And then I sat back and thought about it for a second And uh, I started thinking about the weird smells of Augusta. If you've been here, and you've landed in an airplane, you've smelled the wastewater treatment plant out by the airport, you've probably smelled Shapiro meat packing plant, if you're downtown and the wind blows this way, and it smells disgusting. You've probably smelled the paper mills. And quite frankly, there are some weird smells in Augusta. But for those of us who live here, We've probably become pretty numb to it. We've probably become pretty comfortable to it, unless it's really bad at some point in time. And I think the implication of that can be true when it comes to the incarnation of Jesus, when it comes to Christmas. It's always right in front of us. That smell is always there, but we've gotten pretty comfortable with it. The incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, what we celebrate at Christmas, even the name itself, Christmas, Christ must, it's always right in front of us. And maybe, just maybe, we've become comfortable with the fact that at Christmas we're celebrating Jesus coming to earth to be known, but quite frankly, that should change everything, and in fact, it does change everything. We don't realize how big of a deal it is that God came to earth. There are essentially three things I want us to pick up on in this passage, right? Through and by the incarnation of Christ, God coming to earth to be known. Through and by the incarnation of Christ, Jesus enables us to reorder our lives around his supremacy. Jesus enables us to embrace the true spirit of Christmas. Jesus enables us to rejoice in who God is and what he's done. Jesus enables us to reorder our lives around his supremacy. If you look back at this text for a minute, it's overwhelming at what Paul says about Jesus in this text. There's just so much there. Right? In verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. In verse 16, by him all things were created, and through him, and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In verse 18, he's the head of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. In everything, he is preeminent. In verse 19, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Verse 20, he reconciles all things to himself. Verse 20, he makes peace by the blood, by shed blood on the cross. There there is so much there. But what we should take away, at least one thing we should take away, at least one thing that should become so overwhelming to us, in reading that passage, is that it is very clear that Jesus is the creator and that makes him preeminent over all things, all things. There is no part of creation and thus no part of our lives that are immune and to be separate from Christ's preeminence. The implication here is that we are called to reorder our lives around Christ because he is preeminent. But we're not just called to do it, we're actually enabled to do it by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. As believers, His preeminence leaves us no choice but to reorder our lives around Christ. Jesus has some pretty incredible titles in this passage. He has some pretty incredible things said about Him. And so often, those titles and those incredible things that are said about Him mean so little to us. We acknowledge them, we talk about them, but functionally, the way our lives work, we reorder our lives around functional idols and functional saviors rather than around Christ. Do do you remember the story in the Old Testament when... God is leading the children out of Egypt. They've been in the desert for a while. As I talked about a minute ago, God has led them by being a a pillar of fire and a cloud. Uh, Along the way, God gives them manna. God gives them quail. That's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament when God gives them quail. Uh, But God has taken care of them every step along the way. He's protected them. He's given them food and water and done everything for them. He's led them every step. Step of the way. And then we get to Exodus 32. And Moses goes up on the mountain for a little while to meet with God, to literally meet with God. And he's gone for a little while. And so the children of Israel and Aaron, they start to get a little worried. And so what's their reaction? They gather everybody's jewelry and they build a golden calf and they begin to worship it. Now, God is taking care of them every step along the way. Moses is up on the the mountain meeting with God. God has provided for them. God has literally been present to them in a pillar of fire and a cloud of dust. And they build a golden calf, and they look at it, and they say, Behold your God that led you out of Egypt. It blows my mind. I'm not saying I would do anything different. But they have literally seen God at work. He has been right in front of them. And they make a golden calf, and they say, Behold your God that led you out of Egypt. They had seen God show up, and then they started worshiping a golden calf. It's often said that we'll know what we've ordered our lives around based on how we spend our time. And how we spend our money based on where we are looking for fulfillment and peace and satisfaction. Those are our functional idols. Those are the things that we turn to when we fail to reorder our lives around Christ and worship the true Savior. The things where we spend our time and money, the places where we go to find fulfillment and peace and satisfaction, those are our functional idols. Those are the things that we really worship, and those things have done nothing for us except for entrap us and enslave us. The call of the incarnation, the reminder at Christmas, is that because Christ is preeminent, because God came to earth, we are called to reorder our lives around Christ. Colossians 1 says that peace comes through Jesus, not through the things that we look to for fulfillment and peace and satisfaction, but through Christ and Christ alone. And that peace and that preeminence means that there is no part of our life, no part of our life that can go untouched. You don't get the peace without Christ being preeminent. That's why we talk about it all the time around here. It's why we pray every Sunday, literally every Sunday, that we would be a people who are increasingly submitting all of our life to the Lordship of Christ. We know that that's what Christ has called us to. It's always right in front of us. And maybe, just maybe, we're so comfortable that we've become immune to it. The incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, the bigger picture of God coming to earth, calls us to reorder our lives around Christ. Number two, Jesus enables us to embrace the true spirit of Christmas. around. Christmas time, we begin to hear about this thing called the spirit of Christmas. Who's heard it already? Somebody, you've heard it. You've seen Elf. You've heard about the spirit of Christmas. My kids have already watched it about a hundred times this year, I think. Um, we, we become nostalgic about the spirit of Christmas at Christmas time. We become nostalgic about fires in the fireplace, about Christmas pajamas and cookies and traditions and songs if I were to ask you what your favorite Christmas tradition is, you would probably have an answer. I do. On Christmas Eve, I go to my mom's house and I meet, eat meatballs and spaghetti. It makes no sense, but, right, that's our Christmas tradition. And we seek after this generic, fuzzy joyfulness that we call the spirit of Christmas. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Right? Right? It sounds kind of good, it sounds kind of sweet, it's kind of nice, it makes us smile. But I'm afraid that on some level this fuzzy, nostalgic spirit of Christmas has caused us to miss the true spirit of the incarnation. I'm afraid we're so nostalgic about Christmas traditions and family and giving gifts that we're actually missing the mark in some way. This past week, when he was talking about the tax bill that just passed through Congress, Donald Trump said this, something to the effect of this, I told you that we were bringing Christmas back, and now we've passed this bill, and we've brought Christmas back. I heard that sound bite, and my very spirit cringed because that might have been political talk, it might have been something tongue-in-cheek, it might have been whatever, but it actually hurt me to the core. It made me cringe, because how in the world are we correlating a tax bill with God coming to earth in the person of Jesus? They are not related at all. It hurt. It's so far off the mark. It's so far removed from the idea that God is making himself known through Jesus that it's almost ridiculous. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, not the firstborn of tax bills. It's so far removed from reality of what Christ has done in the incarnation that it hurts. And here's what I want us to see. In their life, who has given up more than Jesus did? Who has lowered themselves from such a lofty position more than Jesus? Who has humbled themselves more than Jesus? Who has suffered more than Jesus? Colossians 1 says that he is the firstborn of the dead. The the bigger picture... The bigger story here is that Jesus came to earth to make God known so that God could reconcile people to himself by suffering and by dying. Philippians 2, 5-8 says this, Have your, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? The true spirit of Christmas, if we're going to talk about the true spirit of Christmas, the true spirit of Christmas is the opposite of selfishness and pride, and blustering about how we're bringing Christmas back. The true spirit of Christmas is not just nostalgia and fuzzy happiness. The true spirit of Christmas, the true spirit of incarnation, is service, and humility, and death. Even in his birth, Jesus gave up the glory that was due a king, He exchanged his throne for a manger. He was brought into the world surrounded by animal excrement and dirty animals. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to give them second birth. He was brought into this world surrounded by animals. Literally in his birth, he gave up his... Glory and set it aside that he might be known. Right? If we're going to talk about the true spirit of Christmas, let's talk about Christ and his humility and his service and his willingness to give up and his relinquishing of his glory for our sake. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be joyful during Christmas, I'm not saying that we shouldn't sing songs. And go to parties and enjoy our traditions. I, I'm not saying any of that. I am saying, let's bring into focus the bigger picture here. The incarnation, Christmas, is about Jesus condescending to earth. It's about Jesus coming down and laying aside his glory that God might be known. And that we might be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. Let's not forget the bigger picture picture let's not let our culture or our traditions or anything else fuzzy up this picture for us let's bring the truth of the incarnation into focus let's remember why jesus was born to make god known and to be the firstborn of the dead that we might be reconciled to god and have peace with our heavenly father number three jesus enables us to rejoice in who god is And what he's done for us. The end of this passage is about what Christ accomplished on the cross. What Jesus actually accomplished on the the cross. The restoration of God's people. The redemption brought through Jesus. Verse 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace By the blood of his cross. The end of this passage is about God reconciling us and reconciling the world to God through the blood of Jesus. It's about Jesus, the the fully God, the fully human Jesus, making a way for us to be rightly reconciled to God and to know God. What's so amazing to me about that is that do you know who else saw this coming? Do you know who else saw this coming long before Jesus ever got to the cross? It was his mother, Mary. I don't know if you were in here when we read from Luke chapter 1 a little bit ago, but may I read it to you again? Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on... He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Look, Mary got it. Mary got it. She knew what the incarnation was about. She knew that it was something to rejoice about and celebrate because God was doing all that he ever promised by condescending to earth and becoming the one that would reconcile us to God. It was about God extending mercy to his people and exalting the humble and filling the hungry and remembering his people and doing all that he ever promised. Long before Jesus publicly spoke for the first time, long before Jesus died on the cross, long before the resurrection, Mary got it. Not only did she get it, she rejoiced in it. Let's not forget the reality of Mary's situation, right? Mary was a betrothed but an unwed woman in an honor culture who became pregnant. The social ramifications of that would have been huge. And we even see that in that Joseph was going to not marry her. And even now, Mary has gone away from her hometown. We don't don't know why, but she's gone away from her hometown. But the social ramifications of, of her pregnancy would have been enormous. But Mary, despite her circumstances, sees clearly a most remarkable thing about God. He is about to change the course of human history by condescending to earth. And Mary is so moved by what God is doing, how God is fulfilling His promises, that she breaks out in song and rejoices. Mary was so moved by the condescension of the magnificent God that she simply rejoiced because God was coming to earth to right all the wrongs, to reconcile his creation to himself, to save his people, to do everything that he had ever promised, and Mary got it, right? And so as we move through this season, as we rejoice and celebrate, let's be like Mary. Let's get it. Let's get the reality of the incarnation. The incarnation means that God is calling us to reorder our lives around him. The reality The reality is that the true spirit of Christmas is about relinquishing. It's about giving and serving in humility. Let's rejoice in that true spirit of Christ lowering himself to earth literally and figuratively. To become the firstborn of the dead, that we might know Him intimately. Right? If you're here this morning, and you've heard anything I've said at all, hear me say this. Christmas, the incarnation, is about Christ coming to earth that God might be known. That we might be reconciled to God. Let's not forget that during this Christmas season. It is so easy. It is so easy for us to miss the bigger picture. Let's not miss the bigger picture. Let's not miss the bigger story. This is a time where for a little while, during this month, we can focus on the idea, on the fact that God has done something so great for us. God himself has done something so great for us that it should cause us to rejoice and to celebrate immensely. We're going to move into a time of response like we do every Sunday here at Redemption. It's a time for us to respond to what we've heard God say to us this morning. We have an opportunity. um, In just a few minutes, the band's going to come back up. They're going to lead us in some more songs. Give us an opportunity to worship by singing, to respond through singing and to worship that way. Uh, as the band comes up to lead us, uh, you have an opportunity to sit right where you are, to reflect, to pray, to maybe just spend some time on dealing with however the Holy Spirit is dealing with you this morning and to and to um, reflect on those things, to remember whatever it might be. We have an opportunity to give during this time as well. There's a giving basket in the back, a place where you can drop your tithes and offerings and worship through giving. And also during this time, we'll have an opportunity to celebrate communion. We celebrate communion every Sunday um, in order that we might remember what Christ has done for us and in order that we might proclaim to one another that we believe it. That's what Scripture says that we're doing when we celebrate communion. So I'm going to invite you to come down this middle aisle, go in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. So remember the body of Christ that was broken for us, and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Knowing that as you're doing that, you're proclaiming that you believe the truth of the gospel of what God has done. If that's not something you can proclaim and remember, I would encourage you to sit where you are, rather than to come and take communion. But if you can, and you want to celebrate that, then I would invite you to do so. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for the reminder from your word of the great things that you've done for us through Christ. God, thank you that you chose to come to earth, that we might be reconciled to you. Holy Father, how magnificent is that? Holy Father, as we move through Christmas, as we think about gifts and traditions and dinners and parties, Holy Father, may our lives, may we be reminded to reorder our lives around you. God, draw us to yourselves. That we might submit to your preeminence, that we might live a life wholly submitted, and given to you. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.